You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hey, as my long-term listeners know, the majority of the reason I started this podcast is to meet people I'm interested in. And man, today's guest is exactly that. I confess that I was not familiar with Mike Cosper before the now famous rise and fall of Mars Hill. But like many of you, uh, that first episode just sucked me right in. I, I have a weird obsession with moral failures with pastors or with, with abuse. And I've, I've actually been trying to figure out what is it about me that dives all in. So when Mars Hill was crumbling, I was reading everything I could. I was digging in. I don't think it's sensationalism. I don't think in me it's a TMZ situation. I think it's a, a holy fear. Like, oh my goodness, what about this is in me? Where are my blind spots? So when Mike published Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, my initial thought was, oh, I'd be really interested in this, but I'm familiar with it. And of course, of course, Mike took us on a profound journey, one that was deeply moving to me, deeply educational for me, convicting, not just the content, you know, the way Mike brought in so many stories and let people share their stories, but also the production value. Mike is fundamentally an artist, a creator, and that all came out in not just his voiceover work, but his musical choices and the way he put his episodes together. It was, it was beautiful. Hmm. And so I, I thought, wow, what a guy. I'd like to meet Mike one day. We had the, well, I should say I had the pleasure of meeting Mike uh, last fall when I was out in Kentucky. And uh, Mike, welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thank you. That was a very kind introduction. Um, and, and I've been so encouraged by your own work. And uh, I'm, I'm really honored to be here. I've got my Calm Aware Present mug, you know, full yeah. of coffee, ready to go. Very so good. looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we like paradoxes around here. We give you a Calm Aware Present mug and recommend you put caffeine in it. That's how we roll in a nutshell. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and obviously, Mike, there's a lot that could be said. You, you have a deep background and a broad background, and, and it's almost unfair that most of us know you through this one thing. But that is where I'd like to begin with you. Um, people may or may not be aware that there was a lot going on in your life and under the surface of your life leading up to the podcast. Um, I, I, if I had to describe it in one word, I, I guess I would say grief. Mm -hmm. Would you maybe catch us up on what was going on in you before you started the the show? Sure. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I came to the Mars Hill story because it was so familiar, because it was my story. Um, I helped plant a church in 2000, pastored at the church for 15 years. I was the second person on staff. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a similar arc to kind of the Mars Hill story. You have this, we had this incredible season of just of just um, deep, rich friendships and relationships and, you know, rapid growth. And then the culture of the church began to really transform maybe seven, eight years in. Um, and it was the kind of thing where it's like you get one little warning bell and then another and then another and then another. And you wake up one day, and I remember waking up in 2012. Um, I was actually on a vacation, and I called a guy who's been kind of a mentor counselor of mine and was just like, I don't want to even drive home. I, I really don't want to do it. Um, and so that was, that was the unraveling for me. It took about three years. 
my exit from the church was very unhealthy in terms of, you know, externally, I think it was unhealth. It was, it was, it looked fine, but my experience of it was very unhealthy. Um, and we just lost a lot. We just lost a lot of relationships. We lost, I thought I'd be serving there for the rest of my life. Um, that unfolded about four years of real uncertainty about what we were going to do. God was very kind. I, that was when I began podcasting full time. I was running a little studio and working with churches and nonprofits and, you know, making podcasts, but it was also anything for a buck. So we were doing websites and all, all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, the opportunity came to come to Christianity Today in 2020. And it was it was a resolution of a lot in a lot of ways, but there was a lot that had boiled up. And so in, in the counseling that I had gotten during those years, the word grief came up almost every single week. And it was like, you got to learn to grieve. You got to learn to gr- how are you going to grieve these things, you know? And I just remember saying to my counselor one time, like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. I don't know what this means. And about four months after I came to Christianity Today, um, Darren Patrick took his life. And my relationship with Darren was very different than a, a lot of the relationships that I think people inside of the journey had. And I, I had told Darren a number of times over the years, I'd, I'd known him for more than a decade by then, you know, man, I'm glad I'm your friend, but I'm also glad I don't work for you. Because he would always mm-hmm. sort of vent about dysfunction and he had an awareness of, of his own, even long before he was removed from leadership, he had an awareness of the way he was contributing to it and driving it. Um, in the midst of that exit from my own church, I mean, it was maybe six months after I'd left, I was in a deep depression. We were feeling very isolated. This would have been 2016. And I get this phone call one day from Darren and he was in a grieving process. He was in this process of trying to understand what had happened to his life and where it was going. And so was I. And, uh, you know, our friendship in the years that followed became very meaningful, and in part because so many friendships disappeared on, my, on you know, for both of us, really, but for, for me as well. So his death in 2020 really uh, catalyzed a lot for me. I mean, it took me to a dark place, but also made me, made me aware of that darkness. Um, and then about nine months later, my dad suddenly passed away. Um, he was... We didn't have any idea anything was wrong with him. And long story short, he goes into the hospital. About three weeks in the hospital, they realized that it's cancer. They thought it was neurological. Um, and a week after they diagnosed it, he passed away. So I, that was so that would have been February 21 or February and March 21. And um, the, those, those two losses, especially the loss of my dad – brought me to this encounter where it was like, it was finally this moment where I go, oh, I get what grief is because there was such a sense of finality to losing my dad. I just, I knew from that point forward, I was just marking these moments in my life, these moments in my kids' lives, just knowing he wasn't going to be there anymore. And it was like that sort of worked backwards. And and I think a big part of it for me was I had to let go of the dream that had been my life for most of, you know, my adult life in terms of what the church was going to be like, what community was going to be like, you know, these very idealistic visions that what was good was going to last forever. Um, So all that together really came into the production of the series. I had been reporting the series during this time. I had been recording these interviews. Um, But, you know, interestingly, because of the way the thing unfolded, 
some of the most powerful conversations I would say I have came on the other side of that, either, you know, either right before we launched the series or during the series as we were doing kind of live reporting um, throughout the release. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite breathtaking to listen to you just lay out what, what first is, I guess, what you might describe as low-level grief, mm-hmm. you know, vocational grief, like it's real. Mm-hmm. But then friendship and, and family grief, that's like a whole other gear. And, and when grief is unaddressed and then piled upon, mm-hmm. that's, quite, that's quite the unraveling. It, it, I guess in some ways it makes sense because to me the, the, the show had so much pathos in it. Like there just really mm-hmm. was, you brought a humanity to it. You, you extracted out of people their humanity. I think that's probably a lot of the power of the show. What would be your take on that? Yeah, the way the way I've described it a, a couple of times is that there was almost a catharsis after losing my dad, um, because it did. It, it was like it opened up a vein where it was where it was all that tension, um, and and all that pressure that had been had been building up not just for the last four years before that, but really for the last seven or eight of. Um, of of experiencing the transitions and friendships and and all that came with it and it was I think there was something to that catharsis um, that I I think it was very transformative for me and I think it, it certainly shaped the way we told the story. Um, now, with that said, I mean I always came to the series. The whole vision for the series came about because of a conversation I'd had with somebody who. Uh, had been part of Mars Hill, had been part of one of the transitions for for a new church after after everything had fallen apart, and we had this conversation in 2016 or so, where he just described like, man, here's what happened to me, and it was heartbreaking, and it was it was physiological, it was deeply psycho- psychological, it was it was crippling for long seasons of time, and it just struck me, you know, when you see a story of a pastoral failure, like with Mark in particular, that it's a front page story in the New York Times. Um, and then it kind of disappears, right? But until he plants again, until he reemerges in ministry, and it's like, oh, well, he's back, you know, he's here. And what was lost, I think, that that was so critical and, and was so, I was so eager for people to see is like, well, what happens to all the people afterwards? What are their lives like? What does, what's the suffering on the other side of it? Because that just gets dismissed in this weird sort of blanket commentary, um, you know, where people are just like, man, it was really tragic, but God just did so much through it. I mean, there's just so much good. And uh, it's like, well, like, let's let's make sure the whole picture is in before you say that, because that's a very wounding thing to say to a lot of people. Yeah, I think that raises... The, the the three what what I seem to notice is the three core responses to the show. Yeah, people like me that were just really grateful that someone was telling the story, telling it well, and and exposing. You know, like that. I would put myself in the camp of let's expose all the ill health. Let's try to clean this house up and build something beautiful. The second camp I would describe as for various reasons believe it should not be told. Anything from do not touch the Lord's anointed to maybe being threatened. Um, but let, let's assume good intent on those people's part. And then I think there was that third category too, Mike, that always also seems to show up that say, hey, Mike, 
you are re-traumatizing or you're not platforming the right mm. people in this story. Mm-hmm. Those seem to be the three um, general responses. Am I missing a core one in your opinion? Yeah, I would say in that second one, there's kind of two two elements of it too, where it's it's the one that I've heard probably more often. Um, and that's that's likely just because of the streams of social media and the the, the people I'm hearing from. But that w- within that sort of anxiety about telling the story, there are people who would say, um, you know, this is you're attacking the church, you're attacking the Lord's anointed, you know, the, the sort of the good outweighed the bad crowd. But yeah. then there's another crowd that's coming at it from this perspective of like. Um, I mean, the, the, you would almost predictably an episode would release. People would start talking about it on Twitter, and then someone would say, "Well, I just really hope you know the next series Mike does tells the positive stories about all the good things that are happening in churches, you know, elsewhere." And it was kind of this, you know, it, it, there was a big blow up about this actually a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, and it, it's kind of the spirit of like, "Well, blame the media. The media is highlighting the wrong things. The media is telling the wrong kinds of stories." And it's a really funny thing to say about, you know, my in- institution in particular, because if you actually go look at the volume of what we publish and the stories that are being told, we're telling in many ways far more positive, encouraging, hopefully resourcing kinds of stories and, and articles um, week to week. Um, and yet people like, you know, like you mentioned yourself, like people gravitate to these stories for a variety of reasons. And the reasons we heard more than anything else was this was my story and I thought I was crazy um, because people who experience abusive, spiritually abusive leadership are made to feel crazy. So that, and, and I think that's the one that bothers me the most, to be honest with you. You know, the people who are saying, oh, he's the Lord's anointed. It's kind of like, okay. Um, and then, um, you know, the people who are critical of kind of which angle we told and all of that, I understand Um you know, we chose the direction we chose for a reason. And like, man, if somebody wants to go in a different direction and tell the story another way, you're more than welcome to. Um, but this idea that somehow it's the media's fault or we have this desire to sort of scandalize or to tear down the church or whatever from people who say, I'm very sympathetic, but um, that's the one that, that, that bothers me because I feel like that's the response that perpetuates the thing. Um, we shouldn't talk about these things because we're giving the church a bad name. Um, and I just, yeah, that's the one I react to in the most unhealthy ways. It, it was also interesting in, in some of the middle episodes where you were struggling to hit deadlines. Like, I can't mm-hmm. fathom, like so much of this, mic was on, you put the whole thing on your own back. And so updating interviews and editing. And so, because uh, I'm on Twitter, it was entertaining <laughs> as you would announce, hey, we're delayed. I just think you must have the widest collection of memes of any human I know. People will just <laughs> memed you to death about being late or whatever on the no. on the show. Yeah, I'm I'm really thankful for Eric Petrick, the executive producer that that worked with me on it, because one of the things he understood and other people at CT understood is that normally a show like this has a very very large team and a much longer runway in in terms of the reporting. Um, Part of what the main thing that contributed to that was that around the time we released the third episode, the floodgates opened on sources who had been telling us no for a year. Right. Lots of people were uncomfortable with telling their stories because they thought it was going to be one more kind of scandal mongering gossip fest. 
And I think the third episode, um, third or maybe it was the fourth episode, I think we uh, I think we proved ourselves that we we wanted to, to accurately describe why this place means so much to people, meant so much to people. Um, and so the floodgates kind of opened at that point, and that was when it was like, okay, now we got to – how are we going to assimilate all these stories that are so vital? And Eric um, in particular was just like, we release the episodes when they're done because um, there's no way to speed the process up. And the thing's going to have a long tail. People will listen when they come out. Um, it's better to tell the best version of the story that we can and and to do it right. And and the same thing went for sort of those last couple of episodes of the the podcast, which were like Avengers length, you know, two and a half hour <laughs> things. Because he again, he was the one who was who was pushing to say, tell the best version of the story you can and be as thorough as you can. And so yeah, I mean that's where um that's how it came about the way it did. It's why it took so much longer. We thought we'd be done in September and we finished December December 4th. So my yeah. anniversary, I'd promised my wife it will be done on our anniversary and 3 a.m. on on our anniversary I posted the final episode. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well and well done for keeping your word there. <laughs> I've got two more questions about rise and fall and then honestly my there's so much stuff I I want to pick your brain on but just the it just briefly on these the first one is I don't see myself as a as a true artist. I do like to be creative, but I'm primarily a, a preacher. Hmm. But I still do some form of public work. But just the platform is tiny. It's generally the local congregation. I find in myself a, a, a rabid defensiveness when someone picks apart because it's, it's like oftentimes what they're picking apart might be correct, but it gives me no credit for how hard it was to get this thing going in the first place. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, easy for you to not put yourself out there and not create this difficult thing. You just kind of poke a hole in it. I I'm projecting onto you the scope of Rise and Fall and the size of the platform, one of the most downloaded podcasts in the world. Um, what was it like for you for so many people to come after you and pick, pick, pick like that? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, do you have a, I have a thin skin. Is that true for you as well? Mm -hmm. Or is your personality different? No, I, I think I'm wired in, in very similar ways. Part of it was, part of what got me through it was a couple of things. One was I made the decision to, for, for one thing, to stop interacting on social media. So I was going to post stuff. I, I read more than I probably should. I, I, my commitment was like, I'm not going to read. I'm just going to post. And then I posted and was like, I was still reading. So I was still seeing a lot of it, um, less than I had been before. Um, and that helped. I mean, because part of what I, I recognized was like, it didn't matter what I posted about. I could post about my, literally, I posted one day about my kid's birthday and people came after me about that. And, uh, um, and it was like, man, I could post about, you know, puppy dogs and ice cream and somebody's going to have something negative to say about it. Why didn't um, you post about cats? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You must be um, a cat hater. Yeah. Um, and then what, what you know, Long before, I mean, I'm not f sure if you're familiar with the work of Jocko Willink, this Navy SEAL guy that does a really interesting guy, writes a lot about or, or writes and talks about leadership, Navy SEAL, veteran of the, the war in Iraq. He led uh, SEAL Team 3 and the Battle of um, Ramadi. Um, and and his, his leadership stuff is fantastic. Um, 
because he speaks from a place with a ton of experience and authority. And he, he has this line that he says, he says, whenever, he says, two things you need to know is when something goes wrong, the proper response is always to say, good. Because when, when you recognize the mistake, it's like, that's your learning moment. You understand the scope of the consequences. You can now be aware of it, adjust for it, whatever it is. And then the second thing is, as he said, when you, when you receive criticism, you need to assume that it's true before you, before you allow yourself to, to say that it's false. Um, and so I think for a lot of it, uh, I just, I just kind of had to come back to saying, you know, of the second one in particular, it was, it was just kind of helpful to, to say like, yeah, these criticisms are, are probably fair. Uh, another person could probably do it and lean in that direction. These are the decisions we made, you know, um, and I don't, I don't have to sort of fight that out in my head. Um, now, of course, there are moments when it gets – when the attacks got deeply personal or when the attacks got just sort of absurd around, you know, this is all about profiteering or whatever, where it makes you angry. You can't avoid the anger of it. And, and you yeah. can say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to internalize that one because it's, because it's so blatantly false. Um, but I think there was something to both of those reactions that were – those were in my head. And it, it helped with a lot of it to just say, I don't need to be defensive about these things. I can go, yeah, good. Yeah, probably. Okay. It's probably true. How do I, you know, adjust for those things as we go? And um, especially with like when people were complaining about the delays, it was kind of like, yeah, totally true. Yeah, you're right. It's frustrating, I'm sure. <laughs> you're a better man than me. I'd be like, do you want to come over here and help me edit this beast? <laughs> like complaining and get in. Oh, that was there. Don't get me wrong. That was there. Um, That used to be my strategy when I was a pastor. People are grumbling. I'd say, if you want to roll up your sleeves, we're here every every Tuesday morning. Let's roll. But yeah, Yeah. that's because I'm, that's largely because I'm petty and (laughs) smarmy. Uh, Final question, Mike. Obviously, you come from a pastoral background. You've served as a pastor. You have a lot of relationships with a lot of pastors. Uh, This podcast challenged some of those relationships. Um, I'm not looking for dirt or names, but what was that like for you? It was hard. Um, again, kind of back to those crowds that were, that were critical. I would say the majority of the people that I know, the majority of the people that know me understood where I was coming from. Um, you know, there were, there were people that I've known for a long time that were very, um, very, either very critical or very sort of resistant. There were people that, I knew sort of from a distance that were, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was wild. I mean, it was like, there were people that I'd met three or four times and I was like, oh, these are really nice people. And, you know, then three years later I'm making the series and they're talking about me like we, we are best friends and they know all the dirt on me and all this kind of stuff. It was just kind of, it was kind of wild. Um, I think with the exception of two or three of those relationships, um, you know, most of them weathered it well. And I think by the end in particular, people understood where I was coming from and what I was trying to say to the church. Um, again, you're, you're not going to please everybody. There are some folks that are still to this day very upset with me over it. And when I process that, I just, I just always come back to people who were in the story like Nate Burke, right? Um, uh, people in the story like Jen Smith. And these people who lived so close to the center of this thing and their their whole lives, their their well-being, their mental health, their emotional health, like 
were so profoundly disrupted by this experience um, that, you know, um, to me, the criticism of when, when you come at this and you say you're attacking the church, I just want to come back and say, no, I'm, I'm fighting for these people in the church who were attacked by a wolf. Um, so you have to, for, you know, when I, when I think about like, okay, what's the, on the other side of it, what was I saying to myself? Like, you have to just really believe that what you're doing is purposeful or you have to be content with, you know, I have a friend who does true crime and he sort of all, he always sort of refers to himself as like, yeah, we're the bottom dwellers of the podcast industry, right? Um, and, you know, and I get where, I, he knows it's a joke. They've solved crimes. They've, you know, and so I think there are people <laughs> who come into that with, with this sort of like, we're going to go after these unsolved mysteries and, you mm-hmm. know, we're going to find missing people or whatever. Um, but it's the same kind of deal. It's like you just have to examine your motives and if you have enough self-awareness to say, I really believe that I'm in it for these reasons, um, it, it helps to weather a lot. So, mm. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I kind of in, inferred it in the introduction. Like for me, part of the joy of the podcast was the production choices. The, you, you, it, it was clearly created by a gifted creative person. I learned new music through that podcast. I went and chased artists. That's what I want. You know, that's, that's what I want my podcasting experience to be. That's why I love This American Life to be mm-hmm. one of the, of course, the gold standard. Right. Um, and so, okay, we have you. You're a creative. You're a pastor. You're a creative. You're obviously also a musician. We've briefly nerded out on the gift of Fender tube amps. Um, but then I, I came to discover more recently, holy smokes, you're, you're quite a gifted journalist and writer. Now, I don't know why that surprised me, Mike, because obviously you wrote the voiceovers and everything, but... Um, I read an interview you did with Bill Melanie. Uh, for those who are less familiar with him, he had this incredible band called Vigilantes of Love. Um, one of, the, I, in my opinion, one of the all-time top ten Christian songs, "Resplendent." That would be mm-hmm. the one I would name. Absolutely. Uh, l- listen to it for the Hammond organ and Emmy Lou Harris, if for no other reason. It's just glorious. So you interviewed Bill Melanie, uh, and then you interviewed Bono, mm-hmm. and you you brought out of them and you interacted with them again in this beautifully engaging way. Um, it, it's it's a trope. It's a Mike. At this point, I should pause and say I'm I'm infamous for my convoluted questions. <laughs> I'll now jump back into that convoluted question. It, it's a trope to say, oh, that the church doesn't have enough art. I, I'm not looking to land in the generalization, but what are you trying to do? Mm-hmm. What, what are you hoping to do with all your work nowadays? Hmm. Gosh, yeah, that's a big question. Um, I think, I mean, you're definitely, you're definitely tapping into something that's really important to me. Um, you know, my role, my role in ministry was always connected to the arts. You know, whether it was music or the church ran a, a center for the arts. You know, we had music venues and art galleries and all the rest, and really was connected to the art scene in the city more than not really connected to the Christian art and music scene much at all. Um, and so this idea of the 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 church and and really the Christian in the world caring about beauty, um, making beautiful things, understanding the way that that beauty helps to you know connect on those emotional levels and and so so for instance with Mars Hill, um, I, I'm a huge fan of narrative podcasts of all sorts. You know, grew up listening to This American Life when I was a teenager, and so. You know, Ira Glass is the Shakespeare of the form, you know. 
Um, But I I think what's interesting about podcast, narrative podcasting in particular is, number one, it's incredibly intimate. Uh, You know, you're listening on – most people are listening on headphones and it's like you're beaming these stories and these voices right into people's heads. And the ability to use music and to create soundscapes and all of that, I mean – it's always funny to say to hear people say, you know, the the production was emotionally manipulative. You can be emotionally nip, manipulative with words. You know, there's anything that's emotionally the the medium right. any medium can be emotionally manip. We're emotional creatures. We react emotionally to anything that comes at us. Um, to me, what's powerful about the format is that it helps it helps to communicate either by sort of. Uh, uh, Providing providing an, an architecture where the story lives and helps the listener, under, you know, comprehend, follow along, especially follow along with the emotions of the the people being interviewed and the people telling their stories. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think uh, evoking emotion is a is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, I'm kind of talking scattered all over the place. With with Bono and Bill in particular, I've known Bill for a really long time, probably 15 years or so. I played with him briefly when he was doing solo stuff right before his marriage imploded and he was kind of cast out of the Christian music scene. And um, I've always loved him and I agree with, you know, loved his music. In fact, it's funny you mentioned Resplendent. I mean, when I look at that, if you go back and look at you know, the plays in iTunes during those years that that were sort of my wilderness years between 2015 and 2020, um, Resplendent was probably the song that got played more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he, there's a line in that song where he says, I will make you promises if you don't expect too much and I'll run the distance if you please excuse my crutch. And I just feel like that is... That that's the Christian life, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's the posture of admitting that all of life is repentance, and admitting that there's a you know that that phrase you know the tragic aspect of all things like that's that's embodied there, and that's something that poetry can evoke in ways that sort of didactic. If you try to sort of didactically teach that, it doesn't get to it in the way that that the music and the and the lyric does. So. That that to me is why the arts are important. They they're just able to connect to us in a place, um, uh, in a human place that, unfortunately, I think in Christian culture we've neglected quite a bit. When I was a trauma chaplain, my my um, supervisor was an Episcopal priest named Peter Keys. Hmm. I, I'd be surprised if Peter's listening, but Peter, if you are, uh, thanks for changing my life. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I graduated from this conservative Bible college, which, by the way, was wonderful. I, I look back with nothing but fondness, but not, not just the Bible college's fault, but my own church context, my own young white male self. In some ways, I, I think one of the most dangerous people in the world is a young white man who's unaware with a Bible degree. Like, that, mm. that can be really deadly. So I brought all that into chaplaincy, of course, the pithiness, the the easy believisms, the the simplistic statements. And we'd have chapel every morning. Uh, and sometimes it was just us chaplains. There were uh, 12 of us, sometimes staff and patients. But every morning we did chapel and we'd all take turns sharing a word. Hmm. And Peter pulled me aside. He's like, you, you evangelicals. He's like, you always have to tell us how to think and feel. He said, when you go to a play, 
the director doesn't come out at intermission and say, aren't we all like Jake? You know, hmm. it's just implied. And uh, somewhere in there, I discovered or rediscovered Fred Craddock, my all-time favorite preacher. Are you familiar with him, Mike? No. Okay, I'll, I'll be sending you a sermon of his. He, he preaches as an artist. Now, he's a PhD theologian in Luke, um, one of the world's foremost PhDs in the book of Luke. He's New Testament professor, preaching professor, but, but he, he shapes preaching as art form where he leaves the interpretation to the hearer, not to the preacher. Mm. So my second highly convoluted question, um, Norm MacDonald is one of my favorite stand-up comedians. And I, I th- I, obviously he has a heavily crass side and I'm actually turned <laughs> off by crass uh, comedy, but I think it's his gift of absurdity. I think mm-hmm. the way he can find the absurd. But uh, I was watching a Norm MacDonald interview and he actually defined the difference between an art and a craft. Mm. I want to share it with you and get your reaction. I'm fascinated mm. by this. He says that people say that comedy is an art form, but it's in fact a craft. Because he says an art form, the artist allows the audience to determine the meaning. Uh, famously, a U2 song. Hey, Bono, what does it mean? Well, what do you think it means? Mm-hmm. Whereas a craftsman or a craftswoman is intentionally creating an experience where everyone does exactly what the craftsperson wants them to do. And he said, so stand-up comedy, he said, is not an art, it's a craft, because my job is to make everyone in the room make the same sound when I want them to make it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. So part one to this question, Mike, do you think preaching is art or craft? Oh, okay. Um, I was waiting for part two if it was a Hey, double. you're a better, you're a better yeah. interviewer than me. No, 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 no. I, I, you'd be, my raw interviews are, are, are a hot mess. So um, it's why we edit, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, gosh. I don't know that I entirely would, would agree with Great. Norm's um, approach. What's... So I'm a I'm a stand up comic obsessive, and yeah. there's a couple of things that I think are interesting. Um, Mark Marin talks about this a lot, actually. He says, you know, the difference between a comic and a comedian is that a comic is somebody, you know, they're primarily a performer, and the comic does things funny, and the comedian says funny things, right? Um, and I think the best example of the differentiation is is Chris Rock, the way Chris. Uh, the way Chris develops his stand-up sets is he'll go to the comedy store in L.A. And the way these things show up, like big comedians will just show up at the store and they'll just inject them. It's like, hey, I need 15 minutes, you know, and they'll just throw them into the mix. And um, he'll go up at the store and people will freak out because it's Chris Rock. And he'll get up and he'll tell the jokes energy-wise like a 2 out of 10. With yeah. as little inflection, as little zip on him as possible. Because if the joke works like that, then he knows when he gets up in a, in a bigger setting and he does what he can do, the, the do things funny, right? Um, when he wants to really sell the joke, it, it's going to explode. It's going to take the roof off the place. Um, and so it's interesting. I mean, there are, he's one of those guys who really lives in both words. He's extremely precise with his words. That's Seinfeld's thing. Um, um, kind of that Gary Shandling school of like, can I boil it down? Can I boil it down? Can I get it tight? And that's, there's something to preaching like that, right? Like, 
How can I, you know, Keller's the guy who's like, I'm going to get this as lean and tight and crystal clear as possible. And then, you know, and then there are the comedians, whether it's like, or, or like Stephen Wright is definitely like probably the most specific example of that with these yeah. like one line jokes, you know, um, the, the one that, the one that I was thinking about it, he says, uh, he says, my friend got a trophy wife, but she wasn't first place. <laughs> and, you know, there's no, there's no fat there. You can't cut anything right. out of that phrase. But then you have a comedian like a Sam Kinison or Pryor was kind of this way where they'll go up and they've got the joke, but then they sell it on this big level. And it's as yeah. much about the performance as, 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 as the other. Um, Norm, gosh, I could talk about this all day. I'll try to make this brief. Norm is a fascinating yeah. example because after he died, you know, when you watch Norm do these routines, he has all these little interesting verbal tics and, you know, he kind of, ah, you know, will sort of stumble through things. And um, I always just assumed that was kind of part of the shtick, right? That, that he was just sort of, he puts on the persona and he goes and he does the jokes that way. And uh, Seinfeld was talking about him after he died. And he says the thing people don't understand about Norm is that every one of those little hesitations, the the sort of stammers or whatever, it was all planned. It was it was just pure technique for him. Um, so anyway, all that to say, <clears throat> um, I, I think about preaching. It, it's probably the same way. There are guys who come at it, and the, and there are guys who moralize it. I mean, I think you could listen to like a Mark Dever on preaching, and he would say the craft is what you do. The, the, you know, the art, the performance is um, a violation because you're, you know, you're selling the truth rather than, you know, articulating it. And I, I don't agree with that. Um, and I, and, but I think you get both, I think you get people who kind of live on both sides of that spectrum. And um, yeah, it, it, they, they, they both have their tools. To me, part of it is just like, well, who are you as a person? Um, I am not one who's going to get up and do – when I try to do the like energetic, I'm going to sell you the thing, that is not me. It doesn't work for not me. Not you, yeah. Um, what, what does work for me is to try and say, okay, do I, have I got the concept mastered? Can I say it in a way that's, that I'm, I'm relaxed and I'm clear? Um, and so, so I would say with regard to preaching, I think you have to know a little bit about who you are. I think knowing that – spectrum is important, is helpful. Um, and I think some of the best preachers kind of oscillate back and forth into both worlds. So that's a long answer. No, wonderful. I, I'm with you. I, I could quickly turn this podcast into an analysis of comedians because it does feel like the purest form of terror when it comes <laughs> to public speaking. And so I, I do marvel uh, I marvel at him. I'm also thinking of Gary Goldman. He, he's uh, economical with his words and every word counts. And to be able to do that for five minutes or 15 minutes, Norm MacDonald's infamous or famous story about um, the serial killer, the 12-minute mm. monologue where every moment is is created. It's it's breathtaking to me. Um, and, well, you know, a lot of comedians I, I mean, say, a lot of comedians say the greatest stand-up performance of, of all time, and this is on YouTube, is his final performance on the Letterman show before it closed, which is the one where he does the whole bit about Germany. Germany. Um, so many people point to that. And, you know, he, he'd spent six months working up that nine minutes. As, and you, and it, you can tell. I mean, you cannot watch that and not laugh. 
That's right. And then the way he closes it with uh, a tribute to Letterman by telling one of Letterman's early jokes yeah. that he heard when <sighs> he was a teenager, and he norms it. Like you can see Letterman in the joke and Norm in the joke. Um, yeah, I, I like nerding out on this stuff because I do think, you know, obviously my primary audience is pastors. Obviously, we have a wide audience, but so many of us are pastors. And by golly, if we don't know ourselves and why we do what we do and how we show up, it's just not going to translate. So there is a fascinating obsession with this. But mm -hmm. the final question on this, Mike, because uh, I can even tell just looking at you, you're terrified by the gauntlet, you're... you're you know, so I know you're putting it off, but we'll get it. We'll get we'll get to the gauntlet, and we're going right. to survive. Okay, right. yeah. Uh, the gauntlet that has been described by one of my guests as equal parts roller coaster ride and proctological exam. But oh, nice. Nevertheless, I digress. Um, but I would just like to close by saying, what is in the pipe? What's coming down the pipe for you? What are you excited about? Is there a specific project or or person that you're you're chasing? You want us to know about? Yeah, so um, we, in November, launched a new series called The Bulletin, and this is a sort of weekly news events, issues, people, conversation. Uh, it's hosted by Russell Moore and myself, um, uh, and then we bring in guests from time to time for, for various segments. So that's been a really fun, exciting thing to just try and do cultural analysis, speak to the issues that Christians are asking questions about. You know, this last week we had Derwin Gray on, a pastor mm, who was great. a seven-year veteran of the NFL, to yeah. talk about, you know, it, uh, violence in the NFL. And what what I loved about that conversation was, you know, he was able to say from a player's perspective, here's how much the game means to us. And when, when, you, when people talk about, oh, you, the, the game is this, the game is that, we need to pull people away from it. He's like, talk to the players. You know, the players are, are going to utterly disagree with everything that you're saying. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because we had that conversation. And then the, the very next day, the young man who had that injury a few days before um, woke up and he couldn't talk yet, um, but he could write. And the first thing he wrote down was the question, who won the game? Yeah, did we win? <laughs> did we win? That's what it was. <laughs> and it just, you know, it just confirmed everything Derwin said. It's like, these guys... They're yeah. just built different, you know, yeah. and, and there's a love and a passion in it. Um, anyway, um, those are the kind of conversations we're trying to have. Where What are the questions people are asking? How do we speak to those? And then I am already doing some initial reporting on like the next long-form narrative series, but exactly how that takes shape, where it goes, um, could could be a while until we have, a, a, have it precisely nailed down. Yeah. Do you have a subject in mind that's public knowledge yet or we're all waiting for that? It's not public knowledge quite yet. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, Mike Cosper, you've postponed it long enough. It's now time <laughs> for the 2023 edition of the Gauntlet of Anxiety Question. All right. Uh, I think we'll ask you three or four. And actually, as much as I tease, I, I think these would be fairly simple. Uh, one of the things that generates anxiety in us is family of origin traits. We all inherit traits from our family of origin. Uh, maybe you'd be willing to share one trait that you've inherited that is an asset in your mm. life. Like, mm. man, this really helps. And then what might be one that's a liability in your life? Mm. Whew. Yeah, that is a heavy question. Um, I would say I think the 
I I think I'll put it this way. The the asset that I feel like I've begun to cultivate in recent years is that my my father was a pretty unflappable guy. Um went through a lot, um came from a from a, a challenging home in many ways and a, but a loving home as well. Complicated complicated background. Um but the thing that was interesting about dad is that like he just he was just an unflappably joyful person and he was a profoundly encouraging person. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's maybe there under the surface a little bit if I can get the uh, get the other side to sort of put, you know be put to death because the the liability on the other side and this is not specifically about you know my mom or anything but I think if you look at um, family on both sides really there there's a lot of reactivity in sort of other generations um and and I have that too uh, and so it's a funny thing where i think different people experience me differently um depending on the context where i i find myself reflecting that attitude in my dad and i find myself reflecting a sort of broader you know, we'll say the the attitude of some of my uncles <laughs> on that same <laughs> side of the family. So, all right, thank you for that. All right, second question. I, I think one of the great challenges of faith is God says things, but the story we tell ourselves says things, and they're often at odds. Like in my life, the inner critic of condemnation versus the kindness of God. Hmm. Uh, and so, what I try to do is believe by faith God's opinion over my own. So if that resonates with you, I just invite you to fill in the gap mm-hmm. to this sentence. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is to me? Hmm. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is to me? What, what might the blank be for you? Yeah. Hmm. Dallas Willard had, sorry, long pause. Dallas Willard has this great phrase where he, he defines love as the will, the will for good. Um, I am not someone who necessarily looks to my future with like a will for good. Um, I look to the future. That's, that's probably the biggest expression of anxiety for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's learned. I don't know. But when I think about how loving God is, his will for good for me, the fact that he wants to see spiritual flourishing, regardless of other circumstances, um, and that he offers it. Um, I would, I'd love to see that embedded more deeply. Mm. Like I've, I've asked that question now probably to 30 guests and I've never heard that answer. That was mm. remarkable. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Two more to go. Um, the work I'm working on now is, is minding the gap between what we believe and what we experience. So it's related. Mm-hmm. And the three core gaps I think we have is I believe God loves me, but I don't feel it. I believe God is with me, but I don't see it. I just thought I'd be further along in my faith by now, those three gaps. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself managing a gap between a core belief you hold and your daily experience? And what would it be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the third one there, this idea that we're supposed to be further along, Mm -hmm. um, that's probably the biggest surprise of middle age. And there's there's comfort in the sense that I, I see it in my friends as well. I think we're all looking at it going, you know, what's wrong with us? Did we have it to, you know, it seems like our parents had it more together by this point. 
Yeah. But then you talk to your parents or you talk to that generation and you realize that, no, they, they, you just experience those years differently in terms of yeah. where they're at. Yeah. All right. So the final question, um, you know, the, the, the antidote to anxiety is the experience of love. Hmm. Um, when recently have you felt most fully and completely loved? Oh gosh. Um hmm. Yeah, I um gosh. Um <laughs> that is a gauntlet question, man. Like yeah. that's that's a deeply personal question. Um yeah. yeah, I I would say, I mean honestly, just this last Christmas break with our family, there was there was just such a sense of joy in being together. And I think it's the first time and, you know, partly because of the craziness of whether it was the Mars Hill thing or the, the tumult of the years before that, it was just a, a time where we were all able to breathe a little bit and in doing that, enjoy each other. And, and so I, I felt that as a real experience of love. Mm. Mike Cosper, the host of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, the co-host with Russell Moore of The Bulletin on staff at Christianity Today to cultivate creativity in the kingdom. Mike, thanks so much for doing your work in public. I'm sure it costs you more than we know, but I just want to thank you on behalf of people who are so grateful for what you do and what you put out, and I can't wait to see what's next. Hmm. Thanks, man. I'm so honored to be on the show and appreciate your work very much. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.